Our Old Testament lesson this morning is found in Genesis 14. We're going to skip the first nine verses and pick up in verse 10 because there are names of which all of us will get lost, including myself. Uh, But just suffice to say, there are four kings, four eastern kings in Mesopotamia who are making war with five uh, western kings in the land of Canaan. And the Canaanite kings are losing poorly. Picking up in verse 10. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Honor. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces among them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the provisions, and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Ketulamur and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let honor Eshkol and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come to you this morning grateful for your word, grateful to feast on it and ask that you would open our eyes. Would you teach us wonderful things in this portion of your scriptures? Show us the gospel here in Abram's life and in the life of these Hebrews. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at Abraham's life in terms of the unwilling hero or the reluctant hero, the hero in development throughout the story. And the Bible clearly depicts Abraham as a hero in the book of Hebrews. It says that by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, for he was looking forward to the city that that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. But the picture we get in Genesis 12 through 22 is complicated at best. 
It's also compromising. We see that he's a coward in Egypt, but he's also a peacekeeper with his nephew Lot. What we get in the life of Abraham is frankly a man much like ourselves, a man both of dignity and depravity. And we learn through his highs and through his lows what it means to walk the pilgrimage of faith, sometimes sprinting and oftentimes stumbling along as we seek to walk in God's ways. Now, have you all ever seen Shrek? I know you laugh because uh, you have. It's a hilarious movie, right? It's fantastic. It gives us all a really good chuckle. But what's striking about Shrek is not so much the humor in the movie, but the transformation that takes place throughout the movie. At the beginning of the movie, you see this anti-social territorial ogre. And this ogre lives in a stump. And this stump is in the middle of a swamp. And he loves his silence. He loves his solitude. He loves this little swamp that he lives in, totally separated from the entirety of the world. But the peace of his solitude is disrupted. King Farquaad, the the ruler, forces all fairy tale creatures to relocate to Shrek's swamp. Now, y'all can imagine what this would make an ogre feel like, right? Three blind mice are eating his food. A wolf is sleeping in his bed. He walks outside and hoping to, to walk into the silence and solitude of a swamp, and he sees Pinocchio, and he sees three little pigs. You can imagine the frustration and the irritation of an ogre. And so attempting to regain his swamp from King Farquaad, he reluctantly goes on a journey to rescue a princess he doesn't know from a dragon he doesn't really want to fight with a donkey he doesn't even like. Throughout the movie, you begin to realize that ogres are really like onions. They have layers. Shrek becomes a totally different ogre by the end of the movie than he was at the beginning. He just wanted his swamp back so that he could live in his silence and his solitude by himself. In fact, when he gets back to his swamp, he's actually lonely and he wants his friends back. See, some transformation has occurred. Donkey has become his best friend. He's fallen in love with a princess that he didn't want to rescue. And he's befriended a dragon that he didn't want to fight. When you can figure out how an ogre befriends a dragon, let me know. But by the end of the movie, a notable transformation occurs in Shrek's life. And we see in Genesis 14 a notable transformation in the life of Abraham. The coward of Egypt has become the warrior of Mamre. The man who asks his wife to play his sister to save his own life puts his life in danger to save his nephew. And what we learn from this fourth scene in Abraham's life is that the faith that was renewed by God in chapter 13 now plays itself out in a faithful pilgrimage in chapter 14. 
So a faithful pilgrimage is fueled by faith in God's promises. Genesis 14 reveals three things about faith that are important for us this morning. We're going to look at three aspects of faith. For, for, of faith. Sorry, that's a lot of Fs. The first is the challenge of faith. The second is the tenacity of faith. And then lastly, we'll look at the blessings of faith. So first, in verses 1 through 12, we see the challenge of faith. Chapter 13 uh, concludes with Abraham living at peace with his nephew Lot, giving Lot the choice of the land. And though Lot chooses poorly, the family is at least at peace. There's no more inner strife, inner turmoil. And on the heels of that peaceful compromise, we read of massive, major conflict in the land of promise. In verses 1 through 4, there are four kings from Mesopotamia. They gather around one leader named Keterlaomer. They join forces and they conquer five kings of the Dead Sea region in, in the land of Canaan. And for 12 years, these Canaanite kings serve Keterlaomer, the presumptive leader of this Eastern coalition. But after 12 years, these servile kings, these weak kings, had had enough and they rebelled against their overlords. But instead of just putting these minor kings in their place, they begin a military campaign that stretches the length and the width of the promised land. They began in the north in what, they call, what is called Ashtaroth. They began in the north and they followed the king's highway south just east of the Dead Sea. And they take on Sodom and Gomorrah. They defeat them, take their possessions and their people. And then they turn their attention to the south, going down to the southern edge of the land of promise, to the southern edge of the wilderness. Then they turn their attention north to the west of the Dead Sea, taking on the Amalekites and the Amorites. The picture that's drawn for us in verses 1 to 12 is of scorched earth. Four indestructible kings moving swiftly and decisively through the land of promise. But it's not just the land that's put into jeopardy. It's the people. It's God's people. After their defeat of Sodom and Gomorrah, these kings take Lot captive along with all of his possessions and all of his family, putting God's family in jeopardy. So Abraham faces a significant challenge to his renewed faith. The promises of God seem to be called into question here. You see, God had promised in chapter 12 that he would give Abraham a land he had promised that he would give him a people and descendants, numbering the stars in the sky and numbering the dust on the earth, as he says in chapter 13. He had also promised to make his name great so that he would be a blessing to all the nations. All these promises are called into question by this eastern coalition of kings. They take the land conquering all of its cities and its people. They take Abraham's family and his people, and Abraham looks weak because he, cannot, because he seems to not be able to protect his family. So the question 
is before us. Is God going to make good on his promises that he made in chapters 12 and 13? When was the last time that you heard that question in your mind? Is God going to make good on his promises to me? Is God going to make good on his promises to me? What external forces were weighing on you? Y'all, we face constant challenge to our faith, constant external forces weighing heavy on us. We just faced a, the possibility of a significant hurricane, and those just south of us did actual, they faced the actual hurricane, natural disasters that are totally out of, outside of our control. Financial markets are in decline. There are upcoming elections and a Russian dictator who threatens nuclear war. These are global events, totally outside our control. But what are the events of your everyday life that challenge your faith? Where are the Eastern coalitions of kings in your life at work, in your life at home? The ones presenting a challenge to your faith, causing you to ask the question, is God going to make good on his promises? Because frankly, we can't escape the conflict of this world. We can't escape the challenges to the peacefulness of faith. Even Jesus tells us in John 16, in this world you will face troubles. Sometimes those troubles, like for Abraham, are totally outside his control. We can't control them. Can't control the natural disaster. We can't control the, econ the economy. We can't control people's actions or inactions against us. And then sometimes, like for Lot, they're the consequences of our folly. Our foolish, sinful choices lead to challenging circumstances. It becomes a crisis of our own making, but the question remains, what do you do with that challenge? How do you respond to the crises that, that have been created, whether by your own making or by the making of others? Then the, that question leads us to the next part of the fourth scene, we see secondly in verses 13 through 16, the tenacity of faith. In verse 13, we, we read that someone had escaped, came and told Abraham the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, that his kinsman had been taken captive. The Hebrew term for kinsman can sometimes simply mean relative, just a distant relative, but more often in the Old Testament, this term is translated as brother. In chapters 13 and 14, and we'll see in chapters 18 and 19, that Abraham's affection for his nephew is more akin to the affection of a brother rather than just a mere distant relative. And it's in this loving loyalty to his nephew that he takes his meager 318 men to fight the armies of four kings. By all visible odds, this is a suicide mission. By all visible odds, there is no way he wins. These guys have just gone north, south, east, and west, conquering the land that was promised to Abraham. These are overwhelming odds. But Abraham's able to face them with a tenacious faith. Rather than 
his fear leading to folly as it did in Egypt. Abram's renewed faith in the promises of God led him to defiant hope. But why is his faith so defiant in the face of the challenges of this world? Two things we see. First, Abraham is called the Hebrew. This is the first and only time Abraham is called the Hebrew. This is a rather unusual designation, and it's only used a few times in the rest of Genesis to describe his descendants. Essentially what the author's doing, I mean, he's just listed a ton of kings and where they're from, what people they belong to. And what he's doing is essentially uh, designating Abraham as God's chosen one. He's distinguishing him from all the other players on the battlefield. He says that Abraham is the Hebrew, communicating that he is separate from all the other peoples of earth, that he's been specially and specifically chosen by God to be a blessing to the nations. And this special designation, this new identity that God has given to him, fuels a tenacious faith in the promises of God. He's the Hebrew, the chosen of God. And then secondly, there's something that we can easily overlook here in chapter 14. It's that Abraham's still living by the oaks of Mamre. It was here that chapter 13 concludes. Abraham dwelling near the oaks of Mamre, where he built an altar to God as a response of faith to the spiritual renewal that God had worked in him. And so Mamre becomes sacred space. It's a place with an altar where Abraham can engage the living God. He can commune with the living God, interacting with his creator. And it would later become sacred space for all of God's people. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all buried there. This was sacred space for them. And it's through this new designation by God and revitalized communion with God that Abraham is able to live by faith and not by sight. He can face these overwhelming odds, this challenge to his faith, because God has chosen him and because God communes with him. And that's true for us as well. When faced with the challenges of this world or faced with the challenges of your own life, the Lord empowers your faith, not because you are great, but because he has chosen you. He has given you a new designation as one of his sons and daughters. And he, re he renews communion day by day and week by week. He chooses you out of all the peoples of the world to be his sons and his daughters, and he gives you access. He gives you access to his throne, access to his sanctuary. Week by week, we come to sacred space, into the heavenly throne room, into the heavenly sanctuary of God, where we rehearse the good news of Jesus, the good news of Jesus' victory over the armies of wickedness and anticipate an even greater victory. This place, this space with God's people is our Oaks of Mamre, where we are reminded of our special designation and where we commune with the living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who empowers a tenacious faith 
with defiant optimism in the face of the challenges of this world. So we see the challenges of faith, and we also see the tenacity of faith. Then lastly, we see in verses 17 through 24, the blessings of faith. It's here in only three verses that we are introduced to an incredibly obscure figure in the Old Testament. His name is Melchizedek. Almost as quickly as he appears, he disappears. We're not told anything about him other than that he's the king of Salem, which would later be called Jerusalem, and that he's a priest of God most high. The author of Hebrews even says, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, if you've ever read the Lord of the Rings novel, not, the, not watch the movie, he's kind of like Tom Bombadil. He is this ancient, obscure, heavenly figure in the Old Testament. He only shows up for three verses. And then the psalmist speaks of him. And then Hebrews devotes a significant chunk to this heavenly figure, Melchizedek. And in contrast to the king of Sodom who comes out to take advantage of Abraham, king of Sodom says, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Melchizedek brings out a royal feast, a feast of bread and wine to welcome Abram back to the land. He does this to strengthen and to nourish Abraham after his battle with the four kings. And in a similar way, Jesus comes to you with bread and with wine. He comes to strengthen your faith, to offer you a blessing, a blessing of himself, to strengthen and to nourish you as you come to his table. And then this obscure priest king mediates a blessing for Abraham. Notice the content of the blessing. He says, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor, you have a little note if you have uh, the ESV, or creator, the possessor or creator of heaven and earth, meaning that God is intimately involved in sustaining the affairs of his world. He does not wind up the clock and let us go spinning. He is intimately involved in the world that he has created. But not just in the world at large, he's also concerned for you. He's concerned for his chosen ones. He's so concerned for Abraham that Melchizedek says that it's God most high who's delivered your enemies into your hand. The blessing given to Abraham isn't given because Abraham accomplished great things for God. It's because God accomplished great things for Abraham. It is the creator of the whole world who has created the victory for Abraham. And just as God created the whole world, and just as he had promised to deliver it from the serpent and from the effects of sin, so has he delivered Abraham by creating the victory for him. Abraham simply trusted that God would make good on his promises, that just as he created the world, he would fulfill the promises that he made to him in chapters 12 and 13. And the same is true for God's blessings over your life. 
Just as he knit you together in your mother's womb, just as he created you, so as he delivered you from the enemies of sin and death, not because you've done great things for him, not because you somehow are a great warrior, but because of his son, because, because that in Jesus, he has accomplished great things for you and for me. As we read earlier in Psalm 110, it tells us that Jesus is the, the, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, meaning that he's greater than the Old Testament priesthood. He is forever a priest king before God, and that he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will, he will execute judgments among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. It's Jesus, the priest king, who, knew, who nourishes your faith with bread and with wine, but also who accomplishes the victory of God for you. How does Abraham respond? He responds with gratitude. At the end of verse 20, he says, Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. He offered Melchizedek, this priest king, this mediator of God's blessing, he gave him a tithe of everything he had. Before anything was divided among the victors, a tenth was given to the mediator of God's blessing. And it's by this tithe that Abraham recognizes that the Lord has created the victory. It is God who has delivered him, delivered his enemies into his hands. And it's by this tithe that he sanctifies his life and his land, offering himself to God's service. You know, I'd suggest this is how we should think of our own tithes. Tithes are a recognition that, that through Jesus, God is the provider of all good things, that he is the deliverer, that he is the sustainer of all aspects of our life. But it's also our way to sanctify our lives and all that is in it to God's service. This is how we respond to God's mediated blessing through Jesus. It's by giving him thanks and by offering our lives to his service because he is the provider of all good things. I'll close with this. Uh, going back to Shrek uh, just for a minute because it's awesome. There are a number of events that can explain the transformation that occurred in Shrek's life. But one primary aspect of the story is that he got a taste of true friendship. He got a true taste of what it meant for someone to be faithful to him. That donkey, as infuriating as he was, was faithful. He was for Shrek. He had learned that the donkey was faithful. He had fallen in love with the princess who also loved him. There were people who were for him. And as your priest king, Jesus is faithful. He is faithful to mediate his blessings to you. He is faithful to feed you. He is faithful to strengthen and to nourish you. He is faithful to commune. 
with you. He comes out to meet you with the royal feast of bread and wine because he is ultimately the bread of life. And it was by the spilling of his blood of the new covenant that he saves your souls, forgives your sins, and creates new life. And he continues to bless you. Continues to bless you by sitting at the right hand of God as king and also by standing before God as your great high priest. He is faithful to mediate God's victory on the cross to you today. And it's in communion with your creator through our priest, King Jesus, that we can have a tenacious faith to face the challenges of the world. Let's ask him for his help. Heavenly Father, we confess that there are things outside us and within us that challenge us that confront our faith and cause us to struggle and to question. God, we ask that you would bless us with your son, Jesus. Strengthen us and nourish us that we would have a tenacious faith, a faith that follows you wherever you would lead us, a faith that trusts you in the face of all the challenges that confront us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.